very much. I'm, uh, I'm Andy, as Josh said. I'm not one of the pastors here on staff at Mercy Road. I am like many of you. I have a day job. I work here in the technology industry uh, in Indianapolis. I'm what you call a lay teacher. And about every four or five months or so, I get the opportunity to come up here and to do one of the things I love and to use my skills and gifts for the betterment of this body of Christ. And that is to open up the word of God and to share with you what I think he's laid on heart, my heart and for all of us this morning. Um, I am a coach here in town. Uh, I have a you know, job outside of the church. I, most importantly, am a husband to my wife, Kristen, and a father to my daughters, Maddie and Abby. They'll be here at the next service, so I can't introduce them here this morning. But it is Father's Day, and I'd be amiss if I didn't, remiss if I didn't say before any longer, I wanna welcome all the fathers that are here, whether you're online or here with me this morning. I hope and pray that today you are celebrated and you are honored for who you are and what you do, good or bad, all those kind of things. Fathers, we wanna celebrate you this morning. In fact, as I talk about fathers this morning, one of the disclaimers I wanna give early on is that I'll be talking a lot about men and fathers and what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit as a father. And I don't want in that for anybody to feel excluded. You know, if you're not a father or if you're a woman or a child or something like that in the room, the goal is not to exclude, but the goal today is to do some application, some challenge for some of us in the room. So anyway, as you think about fathers, I have a question for you. And as you think specifically about your father, and the question is this, when you think of your father, what one word comes to mind that you would use to describe him? And I know that for some of us, that a lot of different things happen when I ask a question like that. Some good, some bad, some maybe there's not many memories there at all, I'm not sure. But when you think of your father, what is one word that you would use to describe your father? And in a second here, I'm actually gonna give you an opportunity to turn to the person next to you and share that, so just a warning. So you actually can kind of think while I'm talking, you don't have to pay attention to what I'm saying. Um, some of you probably came with someone you know or whatever, it's comfortable, and that won't be any big deal to turn to the person next to you and say one word that describes your father. Others, maybe it's, that would be a little awkward or uncomfortable, maybe you're new here, and that's, I'm not gonna make or force anybody to do that, but I would encourage you to think about the question, and if you can, if you feel comfortable enough, what is one word that comes to your mind when you think about your father that you would use to describe him? Take a second and share that to the person next to you. All right. Did everybody get a chance to share that wanted to share? Were you guys nice at least? A little bit? This will be interesting when my daughters are here next service. I'm gonna put them right up here and they're gonna to have to tell me. Um, so up on the screen is a picture of my dad, Ken Dalton, all right? Um, and so as I thought about this question that I was gonna ask all of you, it's only fair that I share. What's the one word that came to my mind when I thought of my dad? What describes him? And the word that describes my dad, Probably like many of you, I went through, like a lot of different thoughts came to my brain and different words, and it was hard to kind of narrow down to one. But I thought of, when I thought of him, was passionate. 
for better or for worse, no matter what he does in life, he is fully passionate about that which he loves, and that's what's important to him. Fortunately, what he's most passionate about is the gospel of Christ. He's a pastor on the south side of Indianapolis, and actually he's what you would call a serial church planter. He is now pastoring his sixth church that he started and planted in his lifetime and all across the country. Um, But he's passionate. And you know, uh, last weekend, Josh and the crew started off this new series called Ghost Stories, right? And it's a really neat illustration that we've got here to talk about ghost stories with the campsite and the camping gear and the campfire and the idea of sitting around a campfire and telling ghost stories and all those kind of things. And some of you, maybe, when you thought of your dad, there might have been a word that came up like outdoorsman, fisherman, you know, whatever it might be, boater, camper, whatever. Not the case with my dad. Never, ever did we go camping or fishing or boating. That just wasn't him. He was not a passionate outdoorsman. He's passionate, but not about that. He was passionate about not going. In fact... I have only gone camping with my dad once in my life, and I know it will be the last time I ever go camping with my dad, or he'll ever go camping. I've actually done it many times, but I know this was his only time. And a number of years ago, we decided to go camping, and he had to go because my younger, there's five kids in our family, three older brothers and two younger sisters. And so my younger sister had a young gentleman in her life that had proposed to her. And so we felt it our duty to take this young man camping the three older brothers, and dad. Well, dad's never been camping, but he had to come along because of the topic, right? And so, because he's passionate about everything he does, one of the things he was passionate about camping was staying warm. Hates to get cold, and he wanted to stay warm. And so, we still make fun of him for this today, but he showed up at that campsite for that night like he just walked out of Bass Pro Shops right, and Cabela's, and Orvis, and Dick's Sporting Goods, and all of them put together, right? Back then, we would go to Galleons. I don't know if you guys remember Galleons Trading Company here in Indianapolis, but that was called Galleons, and he was loaded up with every piece of clothing and thermal underwear and layer upon layer of camping gear that he could find to make sure he was going to stay warm that night because he didn't know what he was in for. And those actually did good service to him for the first part of the evening, as we're sitting around the campfire, it was a late fall night, so it gets cold and all that kind of stuff. And that did well to be that layered up and that warm. It didn't do so well about two o'clock in the morning because he also showed up with his brand new zero degree um, little, I forget, the little camp, you know, sleeping bag that you get. You can sit in there really tiny and you got to get inside those and this new tent that's supposed to be sealed and all this kind of stuff. So at two o'clock in the morning, he had an urge come over him that happens to many of us at two o'clock in the morning and he's got to go to the bathroom. But the problem is he's still fully layered, fully inside this little sleeping bag and inside this tent and has no clue what he's doing. And so he is frantically, nervously trying to figure out how to get out of this zero degree sleeping bag in the dark, how to unzip these two zippers that go to the front door of the tent because you know one's got to keep the bugs out and one the do or all that kind of stuff. He gets out of the tent, finds his shoes, runs to the woods to go to the bathroom and then remembers he still has four layers of clothing that he's got to take off before he can go to the bathroom. Well, luckily he made it. He didn't embarrass himself and wet himself, but 
he did vow he's never going camping again. And the rest of us got some nice camping gear after that uh, weekend trip. So my sister did end up marrying the young man and all is well and he's terrific. Uh, but anyway, that's my only one and only camping experience with my dad. Ghost stories. Josh has brought us into this new series called Ghost Stories for the next four weeks, starting last week. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Today, I get the opportunity to talk to you guys about kind of two things in one. One is Father's Day and being a father, being a dad, being a man, that kind of thing. Secondly, what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? And when I say something like that, I know that a lot of different things hit you guys' mind and there's a lot of crazy topics that could come out there. And the nice thing is, I'm gonna leave most of that stuff to Josh for the next two weeks. So he gets to handle all the, the dicey stuff, right? The stuff that people argue about. So what I decided to do was kind of look for what would be a story in the scripture that would talk to us about these two different things. And I feel like the Holy Spirit laid upon my heart a story in the, in the scripture of passage of a man And I'm not even sure if he was a father, but if he was, he would have been a great father. And the story of this man and what it meant for this man and what it looks like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So for those of you who have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts. If you don't, that's okay. It'll be up on the screens next to me. We'll be in Acts chapter 6. But before we do that, let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. The book of Acts is basically the story of what happened after Jesus. So in the four gospels, you got, you know, at the end, Jesus was crucified and resurrected three days later and Easter, the official Easter happened, right? And then the question is, what next? What happened with the early church so that we can be here today 2,000 years later? How did that church start? What kind of struggles did they have? What did they go through? Who did it? Who led it? All that kind of stuff. That's the book of Acts, all right? So... Jesus was resurrected, hung around for 40 days, ascended into heaven. 10 days after he ascended into heaven was the day of Pentecost. Then at that point in time, Peter and the other apostles take over and they start leading and they start building and forming this new church. And they start teaching and they start preaching and it's working and it's growing. And they keep teaching and they keep preaching and it grows and grows and it starts to explode. And they start healing people and it continues to grow. And as you can imagine, with any type of growth like that, there's a group of people that weren't too happy about it. And the group of people that wasn't too happy about it were the religious leaders of the day who thought that two months earlier, they had taken care of this problem. They had cut the head off the snake, Jesus was dead, this thing would fade away, who are all these crazy people? And why are they still around? This was supposed to go away. And they're not very happy about it. And so, as is often the case, persecution and opposition starts. And right before the story we're going to read in chapter 6, Peter and the other apostles are actually thrown into prison, arrested, beaten, flogged, sent home, and scolded and told never talk about Jesus again, which we kind of know they didn't do, right? And that leads us to where we start today, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, if you'll read a couple verses with me. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God 
in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. All right, so what's happening here? Unfortunately, when there is growth in the church and the kingdom of God, there are a number of people that aren't happy about it. The religious leaders weren't happy about it, but also the enemy isn't happy about it. Satan, devil, the enemy, whatever you want to call him, always has two strategies that he loves to employ whenever there is growth. And the first strategy we see here, and it's the very first occurrence of infighting in the church. He loves to employ the strategy of internal fighting, internal issues, internal disagreements. And what's happening here is there's 5,000 plus people in this church. Understandably, there's going to be different cultures. And you got these Hellenistic Jews, which basically meant they're more Greek in their background, in their traditions, in their culture. And you got Hebraic Jews, which are kind of more Israelite in their background and cultures. And they're not happy. The Hellenistic Jews are saying, hey, we've got widows, they've got widows, and you're taking better care of their widows. And we're not happy about it. Religious, I mean, leaders, you 12 apostles, what are you going to do about it? All right? The very first internal fight that happened in the church. And I don't know if I'm comforted by the fact that they did it immediately 2,000 years ago or if I'm disheartened by the fact that they did it immediately 2,000 years ago because we've been doing the same thing for 2,000 years, arguing about little things like this. Fortunately, the leadership said, hey, look, they had to come up with their first solution to this first fight within the church. And so Peter and the other apostles said, we are doing great things here. We've got to grow this church. We have got to stay focused on praying and preaching the word, and spreading this message. And we can't get distracted by some of these things, but these things are important because we've got to also take care of the people in the church. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask you, the church, choose seven people, seven men among you, so that they can come along and they can take care of these type of items. These were the first, what we would call today, deacons. So that we can stay focused on preaching and teaching and prayer and that kind of thing. And that was the plan. And that was the solution that they came up with. So let's see how it went over. Verse five. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. All right. So, as they sent the church out and said, choose seven people, they only gave them two qualifications they wanted these men to have, right? They said, make sure that these men are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. Now, Full of wisdom we get, that makes sense. You would want wise men in this role. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? And more importantly, what did it mean back then to be full of the Holy Spirit? Back then, to them, what it would have meant to have been full of the Holy Spirit was someone whose life exemplified someone who would make decisions like the Holy Spirit would make decisions, would do actions like the Holy Spirit would act, would talk like the Holy Spirit would talk. This would be like a crazy WWJD, over-the-top, 
bracelet kind of person, right? Um, somebody who they look and feel and act like they are fully controlled, like a person living on earth, like the Holy Spirit, all right? Find seven guys like that that are also wise, bring them to us. So they bring seven. And what do we know about these seven? Well, Dr. Luke, the author here, tells us all seven names, five of them are never mentioned again. Philip will be talked about here in a couple chapters in the book of Acts. Stephen is the one we're going to talk about today. He's the only one that gets any love here in this chapter. And we, we learn a little bit more about Stephen. Not only is he wise, not only is he full of the spirit, but he's also a man full of faith. So Stephen's resume, wise, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. I don't know about you, but there's worse things to be known for. There would be worse things for your kids to say about you as, they, as I ask them the question, what word do they think of when they think of their dad? Wouldn't it be cool if they said, my dad's a man full of faith. That's what my dad is, right? There are worse things, and Stephen is starting to show us, and he will over the next few verses here, a resume of attributes and characteristics of what it looks like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is just the beginning of it. Moving on, verse eight, his reputation gets even better. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great and wonders, wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So, his reputation gets better. Now, he's a man full of God's grace and power. I don't know. This is starting to get hard to live up to, right? A man full of God's grace and power. So much power so that he is now doing signs and miracles himself. And because of that, he's gathering interest. And the people are starting to follow him. And the religious leaders are like, what in the world happened? We thought we killed the leader. That didn't work. We threw the, other 12, the next 12 leaders in jail, beat them, told them to quit talking. And now we got like the next crew coming. And he's just supposed to be a deacon. And he's supposed to be just taking care of people's food issues. And now he's also doing miracles and wonders or people are following him. What are we going to do? And so in these verses, it talks about the fact that they try to argue with him. They try to start to debate with him. And Stephen shows us the next thing that happens when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit is through the wisdom of the Spirit, they can't even beat him in a debate, in an argument. And these guys are the intellectuals of the day when you talk about religiosity and everything there was to know about Judaism. They know everything and they could not trip him up in a debate because he's relying upon the Holy Spirit. As you can imagine, that doesn't go too well, so they keep going. They turn up the dial. So then they secretly persuaded some men to say, well, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. 
So instead of being able to debate and out-argue Stephen, who they're not happy with right now, they decide to do, which is a very normal next step, and you probably, it should ring a bell, because it just happened a couple months earlier, they did the same thing to his teacher, is they started to round up false witnesses that would falsely accuse Stephen of saying and doing certain things. Now, have you ever been falsely accused? How do you respond when you're falsely accused? So, when my wife comes in the next service, she will be able to attest to this. But I am absolutely horrible at this part. Being falsely accused, being justly accused, being falsely accused, being accused of anything. I immediately, and probably many of you out here, immediately go into defense mode. And I can defend and defend and get argumentative and debate with the best of them. And my problem is I actually think I'm right, because most of the time I am. Um, and I, no matter what kind of accusation, good or bad, right or wrong against me, I will fight it and try to defend myself. And I'm sure there's many wives in here that are smiling about their husbands right now. This would not be something that my wife or my daughters would have put when I asked them the question, you know, whether they describe their dad. Well, my wife actually might have said that. He's never wrong. Um, <laughs> or he doesn't think he is, but. So what I, I decided to do as I was thinking about this talk is what I gotta do is come up with a good illustration where some time ago, where I got accused of something and it was petty and falsely accused and then I argued it to the, to the silly extreme. And I argued it and I shouldn't have argued it. And my problem was I couldn't find anything I shouldn't have argued. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Um, because if you're like that, you literally can't think of a time when you shouldn't argue back about being accused uh, because it's literally impossible because you don't think you're wrong, right? In the face of false accusations, here in verse 15, Dr. Luke tells us, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So what does that mean? It means they're rallying up all these false accusations the whole, they're just throwing stuff at him like he's in a court of law and he's just sitting there smiling. He is at peace. He is comfortable. He's not defending back. He's not getting emotional. He's not getting argumentative. It doesn't trigger anything in him. He's good. I don't know about you guys. That's hard. It's almost impossible and he's good because he's once again showing us one other character, one other trait of what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he's also once again following what his teacher did just a couple months earlier when he was falsely accused. So what happens next in seven is the chief priest, after these accusations, comes to Stephen and says, what do you have to say for yourself? We've thrown all these accusations for you. Aren't you going to defend? What are you going to say? What's your comeback? And so finally, since he was asked the specific question, and given the opportunity, Stephen does. And he enters into a long sermon, a long speech, which we're not going to read. For the sake of time, I'll spare you from that, but I would love for you guys to read that on your own some point in time. And from chapter 7, verse 1 to 50, he basically goes through this long sermon. And one of the things he was being accused of was dishonoring the history of Israel, from Abraham to Moses to David on through. And so what he said is, okay, 
In his long sermon, he said, oh, let's start at the beginning. And he walks them through from Abraham, through Moses, through David. And this is in the midst of all these great teachers of the law. He walks them through their history and shows them how at each step of the way, they have acted the same way. They have always rejected the prophet. They have always said no. They have always persecuted, even to the very end, to the point of a couple months before when they betrayed and murdered Christ. And that's his lesson for them. We're going to flip ahead here. 7, verse 51, so we can hear how he finishes his little speech. And this is the last paragraph of his speech or his little sermonette to them. We'll see how this goes over in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. Jesus, I mean, Stephen gives us a couple more nuggets here in his entire sermon, but especially here at the end is, when given the opportunity, Stephen, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is not afraid to speak the truth. He's not afraid just to say the truth and what it is and what it's been in someone's life to their face, no matter what kind of response he's gonna get, and by golly, he knows what's coming next. He knows this is not gonna go over well. He knows this is gonna tick them off. And to their face, he basically said what they have done throughout all of history, they're just repeating it to the point of murdering Christ on the cross. So he's courageous in the midst of more than likely opposition. So in verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious, understandably, and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. All right, so I gotta explain what's going on here. He just did his long sermon and called them out. They're ticked. The emotion is growing in the room and they are enraged. And in the middle of this enrage, if you could make it worse, Stephen says, oh, cool. You know what I see? There's God and his son sitting next to him, and they're kind of like approving of what I'm doing here. Could you imagine how much that would have ticked them off? They're like enraged. They, they, just, they just want to go after him, and he's as calm as can be, and he's like, hey, guys. Like he is worthy of talking to God the Father and Jesus, and they're watching him right in front of their face, which he knows is really going to drive him crazy. But what he is able to display for us is in the midst of the most possible risk and danger for the sake of the faith, he is able to keep his eyes focused where it needs to be focused, up above and on Jesus, and he's good with it. So what do they do, understandably? At this, they covered their ears and yelled at top of their voices, and they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. So this is like kids, right? This is like your little child is like, da, 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 da. they're literally, like, they, they're acting like childs and they're running around screaming, holding their ears so they can't hear him talk anymore. And they just have lost their minds and they run at him, drag him out into the streets and start to stone him to death, right? And he kind of knew this was probably gonna go this way. 
But he continues because he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to handle this entire situation. And then Luke does this really weird thing in the midst of this very dramatic, I could even picture the movie scene, if you can picture it, very dramatic scene of what's going on. He jumps to the side and gives us a preview. And he says in the middle of this, at the end of 58, he says, meanwhile, while all this is going on, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So what happens here is you got this man named Saul who's most likely the leader that's around all these religious leaders of the time. He is like second, second only to Gamaliel at the time as far as a teacher of the law. And he is a persecuting Christians. And all the other people are laying their coats at his feet so that he can sit there and watch them execute, right? Well, what many of us might know in this room is this young man, Saul, will, in not too distant future, become the Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament that we read today, and is probably the greatest evangelist of all times. But Dr. Luke takes an interesting side note to introduce us to Saul, who sat there and oversaw and approved of this execution of Stephen. And imagine the impact it had on the future evangelist of the world. So while they were stoning him in verse 59, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Just like his teacher did a couple months before on the cross, when he finally was at his death's door and things looked and he knew it was his last breath. His last breath was that of forgiveness. And he forgave his accusers. And he forgave his executionists. So let's go back to the very first question that I posed to each of you guys this morning. And instead of thinking about the one word that you might use to describe your father. Dads, let me ask you this question. What do you think would be the one word your kids would use to describe you? Or anybody else in this room who's not a father? What would be the one word that those people who love you, who are close to you, friends, family members, or whatever, would use to describe you? And these are some of the words that Stephen taught us. These are some of the attributes that were told about Stephen. He was full of faith. He was controlled by the Holy Spirit. He was full of God's grace, full of God's power. He spoke the wisdom of the Spirit. He had a face like an angel. That would be a good one, face like an angel. He was non-defensive, peaceful, loving. He was a witness to others. He spoke the truth, courageous, sacrificial. He focused on things above, and he was forgiving to his death. Would any of those be true of you? What do you think, dads? Would any of those be true of you? And for anybody else in this room, 
would anybody use any of those phrases to talk about you? And I'm, the goal of this morning is actually not a feel bad about yourself, make you feel guilty as you leave here this morning kind of thing. The goal is really to say this. For those of us in this room that at one point in their life have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross and three days later when he conquered death with his resurrection and you've placed your faith and believe in that, for those of you in this room who have been there, at that moment you also were fully indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Stephen to be that man that he was is the same Holy Spirit that indwells you. And all of us have a 100% ability to live fully empowered by the Holy Spirit if we would just embrace that, if we would just live that. The goal of this, this morning is not to make us feel bad like, oh, woe is me, I can never be like that. It's you can walk out of here being like that and being like Stephen if you choose to embrace what's already a part of you, what's already true about you. So I wanna leave you with one last lesson. And this is the lesson that I got from my dad on my wedding day. Well, actually, in my, during my wedding time. Um, and that is this. I had my father officiate our wedding. So Kristen and I had him officiate the wedding. He also, because of that, did our premarital counseling. I don't know about you guys, there's some uncomfortable conversations during premarital counseling when your dad's doing it, right? Some questions I was hoping he wouldn't ask, but he did. Um, one of the things that I will never forget, and it's a lesson that I learned and I use today as I do, uh, as, I, as over the years I've counseled a few people, pre-marriage and other things, is he said, Andy and Kristen, everybody around you leading up to your wedding is gonna tell you this day is all about you. Make the decisions you wanna make, choose the flowers you wanna choose and the music, this is your day. Brides and bridegrooms are told this all the time, this is your day. And basically what my dad said was, basically the culture around you is trying to tell you that on your wedding day, you have a license to be selfish and to make it all about you. And he's like, that's baloney. There is no license to be selfish that any of us should ever be given. He's like, your wedding day should be a day where you can serve others. Fathers, we have this silly culture that tells us today, Father's Day is about sitting on the couch and watching golf or making a tea time or doing whatever you can to be selfish today because today is the day when everyone needs to cater to dad. So I challenge you this morning, don't be that dad. That's not the way we live as followers of Christ. Today is the day you can serve. Serve your kids, serve your family, make it about them. And for all you kids who are excited about that lesson, same goes for you on your birthday and on Mother's Day and on Christmas. All these days we've given ourselves license to be selfish. Turn it around. Be like Steve. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the story of Stephen. And thank you for the opportunity to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to live like we are fully capable of living. In your name, amen.